Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me today, I have Nathan Fox. Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's another beautiful day in San Francisco. Played golf yesterday. It's, uh, it's lovely. It's nice to be in Northern California. Uh, that does sound nice. It's pouring here and very cold. So, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. I'm inside. So, uh, but today uh, we got some great stuff here. We're 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 gonna bring on uh, Matt Sherman from Manhattan LSAT. Uh, he's in San Diego, and so I imagine he probably has good weather too. Yeah. But we're gonna cover a lot of questions. Let's see here. What was was the things? Some of the things we talked about. Uh, we talked about whether or not you should take a lot of time making inferences on pure sequencing games or which types of inferences you should make before you go on to the questions. We talked about uh, what to do if you don't see the answer that you predicted, whether you should freak out or whether you should have a more of an open mind when you're reading the answer choices. We had a little bit of a debate there, I think. We, we had sort of different strategies there, which listeners will probably be interested in. Yeah, and then specifically what to do about main point questions in terms of moving on, right? Well, and whether to read all five answer choices, we had a little bit of a debate about that. Same thing with uh, on the matching flaw questions. Sometimes I think it's tempting if you see A looks really good, it's tempting to just pick it and not read B, C, D, and E. We had a little uh, debate about that. I think Matt was actually probably right on that one, um, is my gut, but... Um, what else we talk about? Uh, let's see. Answering the first question in the games, how to answer them, and uh, how many times to go through the rules and make sure you're not making any mistakes there. Uh, we then went on to questions from a listener, Keaton. Uh, he was specifically asking about uh, the impact of his work experience and his GPA on admissions decisions and. Matt had some pretty interesting information about those um, those GPA LSAT formulas that law schools use. I guess they're different for every law school and where you can find them. And then, I guess lastly, kind of what to do in the last couple of weeks as we get ready for the December test, specifically in terms of how to improve your score uh, in the game section and what you can do about that. Uh, anything else? Well, I think that was it. I think we ended on a fairly positive note with just some positive encouragement for people who have only a couple weeks left and they're still kind of sucking on the logic games. I think all three of us agreed that it was not too late. So a little bit of good news. But with that, I think, uh, well, we should give out our contact information. I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. Our website is thinkinglsat.com. Is it thinking outside or thinking outside podcast.com? Thinking outside.com. No, yeah. Thinking yep. Sometimes mm-hmm. I get confused. Okay. Thinking And we have uh, a newsletter which we just posted to the website there. So if you want to uh, get some updates from us, uh, LSAT tips and whatnot, go to thinking and uh, leave us a question, send us a note, say hi. We love to hear from all of our listeners. I guess we should go uh, talk to Matt. Yeah, let's get started. Okay, thanks. Uh, so at Manhattan Prep, I actually I play s- I several roles. Um, I, I kind of have a three-pronged attack. Um, I'm lead, co-lead on our LSAT curriculum. So I, I help manage the, the team of curriculum folks who are busy way right now working on the fifth edition LSAT curriculum um, and putting out fires with anything that came out with the fourth edition. Um, I also uh, manage our LSAT marketing for uh, field operations. So if it's a campus event, um, whether they be workshops or sponsorships with mock trial teams or law fairs, um, I manage our calendar for that nationwide, as well as I do a lot of teaching. So I'm teaching currently about 30, 35 hours a week on top of both of those keeping me up to 70s, 80 hours a week. It's, this is a really, really busy uh, part of the year for us. I can't believe you can teach that much. How do you, how do you handle that? 
Uh, it's challenging. It's, it's, it's definitely challenging, especially because um, I have a lot of uh, private tutoring students. And so they need um, a lot more attention, a lot more care. You have to figure out you know, what's going on with each one of them. You have to keep a, your finger on the pulse with, with each student. So there's definitely a lot of management and a lot of outside work that goes into any hour that you put in with a tutoring student. Classes are a little easier. Um, classes, you show up, you make sure that you understand what the class is. One of the nice things about our courses is that we can, our, our question deck is variable. So when I go into one class, even I know that the topic that I'm going to be teaching, it, it may feel different than in another class just because I may choose different questions based off of how the students are performing. So there's a lot of um, flexibility and variability, which keeps it interesting. Certainly doing different questions all the time helps to keep it interesting, but still, I'm sure you find yourself saying essentially the same thing over and over. There are certain points that need to be made regardless. Um, it just depends on you know how long do we spend on one issue versus another. Um, it depends on how the class is doing. Do you get a little break after the December LSAT's over? Oh boy. Um, so the after the December LSAT, we go right into the February LSATs. We got a winter courses beginning early December. Um, but after that, so end of January, early February, uh, there'll be a nice little break. I Definitely see. planning on taking some time off. I see. Cool. Well, I guess we should jump into the, oh, I, I wanted to ask you one other thing, Matt. You said you started your own uh, thing. Was that before you, before you joined up with Manhattan, you had your own LSAT prep company? Or that is that back, Manhattan that you're talking about? No, no, no. That was back in 2007. I had my own local uh, LSAT prep course here in San Diego. Um, we had... It was, it was doing pretty good. We had multiple current, uh, concurrent locations, um, but uh, decided I wanted to take a year off, so I, I sold that company. Um, and actually, I interned in a vineyard for the next eight months after I did that. Wow, cool. <laughs> and then decided not to stay in the wine business? Decided that the wine business is for when I retire. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Got it. Makes sense. Okay, so we have a whole stack of listener questions here. Um, some of them have names on them, some of them don't, but intern Matt put this list together. Thanks, Matt. And um, I guess we'll just dive right in. I have a question here that says, I spend too much time on pure sequencing games making inferences on the actual board. Should I just stick to the first and last slots and use my diagram to determine where variables can and can't go? I think the question's kind of like, how long to, to spend making a diagram on a really simple sequencing game. Um, Matt, what do, you, what do you think? You know, I think I, I'm going to deviate a little bit from what I think most instructors would suggest and, and probably even what our, where, I mean, a little bit from what our, our book suggests. Um, there is an important skill in being able to find those inferences where, you know, J is preceding K, that J can't go last or K can't go first. Um, and being able to, to, to find those, you, you have to spend a little bit of time practicing that. That said, um, my belief is that for the implicit inferences, in terms of the position exclusions where players can't go, I don't think you should spend time up front notating where all the players can't go. Um, if it's explicit, if it's in the rules, write it down. Otherwise, um, I just see too many students spending a minute and a half trying to find all of those inferences, per se, and, and it costs them the fourth game. Yeah, Ben, what do you think? Uh, I agree. I, I think um, the ability to read that, I mean, the way I, I have students put a pure sequencing game together is to link all those rules into sort of a web. And I, I think it's really important to learn how to read that web. But once they know how to do it, um, sometimes I don't even write down what has to be first and last. Uh, if it's only two or maybe three variables, that can be first, then maybe I'll write them down. Um, but it's really the ability to read that diagram and then use it as necessary as opposed to figuring out everything up front. I think putting all those variables together in that chain is really the, the skill that you need and then the ability to read it, but that's it. Yeah, I think I agree with this. Uh, where did, did this problem come from? I think it comes most frequently from students who have read the power score logic games bible those are the students that i see making all of those exclusion inferences that go down you know below below the slots and there are so many examples of games where you make all of those inferences and then none of them is ever an answer to any of the questions 
Um, I don't know if you guys happen to remember game one from June 2009. June 2009, of course, is the notorious section with the Dinosaurs game that everybody hates. But game one was a sequencing game. And if you make all of the inferences, it then asks you who can't go third. And you look at the diagram and there's nobody who can't go third. <laughs> so it was like you spend all that time making all of those exclusion inferences and then you don't really get rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. So, um, Matt, how do you, do you guys deal with it the same way as I think both Ben and I do on a sequencing game where you're going to build a web of rules connected to each other? Absolutely. We, we call it the tree. Um, all of those relative rules, how they combine, we call it the, the tree. So we, we definitely build that. And then for relative ordering games, which I think is what we're referencing here as peer sequencing, we don't spend time making those inferences up front. Okay, K can't go last, J can't go first. Um, I'm not sure what you guys call the, what we call basic ordering games, where you have just a series of rules. It's not the kind where it builds the web. For those, we do start recommending that people make those inferences. Um, but I think it's more of a skill to build than it is to something to practice on test day. Uh, the one exception to that would be ordering games with a very limited cast of characters. If there's only like, say, three players, and the, the fewer the characters you have, if they're going to have to repeat themselves, then um, the game is going to work through elimination. And it's, if it can't be this player and it can't be that player, it's going to have to be the remaining player. So the fewer the players, the more that starts to become more important. And do you do the thing where you look at the first and last spots? We always ask who can go first and who can go last, absolutely. Yeah, I do that too. That, that's something that I'll always do on an ordering game, just because there's so many questions where... You realize before the game starts that only L and O can go last, and then question seven says if O goes second, and then the answer is L goes last. So that's a really good habit for listeners to get into, definitely, is looking at the first and last spots on a sequencing game. And it sounds like we're all in agreement that you don't really need to make all of those uh, inferences below the slots, all of those exclusion inferences. Okay, um, anything else you guys want to add to that? No. All right. No. Moving on. Um, I think this is a logical reasoning question. What happens if you don't see your predicted answer? Should you read the answers with an open mind? It goes on, but let's stop there for just a second. You guys want to tackle that? Either of you? Sure. I mean, I would say definitely yes. I, I think that... Um, in flaw questions, for example, there are sometimes two flaws in the argument, and one is very easy to spot, and the other one is a little more tricky. And I think people notice the easy flaw, and they look for that, and it would be a correct answer, but they don't give it to you. Instead, they give you the other flaw that was harder to spot. So I think it's very valuable to take time to try to predict an answer because it gets your mind wrapped around the the argument itself, the conclusion, and so on. But there are often multiple correct answers, and they just don't give you the one that you thought of. This is also true in like necessary assumption questions. I think there are tons of necessary assumptions, things that need to be assumed for the argument to make any sense. Um, and there may be a necessary assumption that sticks out to you, but they give you something else. So I would say, yeah, definitely. Ben, how often does that happen to you where you're reading the answer choices and, and you don't see an answer choice that you predicted? Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. But I do feel like depending on the question type, for example, necessary assumption, I feel like it happens more frequently. Whereas something like sufficient assumption, I'm going to force myself to predict an answer and it's almost always going to be along those lines. I feel like for me, it, it's half the time. I mean, I'm almost never predicting accurately. Um, so I need to stay very flexible as I'm reading through the answer choices. Um, and I'm, kind of, I'm very used to um, the ideas that I've come up with not actually being reflected in the answer choices. Anytime you're evaluating an argument, um, whether that be an assumption question, strengthening question, weakening question, there's going to be multiple issues um, possible. And so they could easily go for a secondary issue. I think it's like, I, I like to have a strong opinion, but loosely held. What's, how, what's that saying? How's that saying go? Something like that. It's like, 
I feel that's how I feel about religion. You know, I, I'm a I'm an atheist, and I feel pretty strongly about that. But if God came down from heaven and started talking to me, I would change my mind pretty quickly. So I have a strong opinion, but it's very loosely held. I'm 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 open to changing my mind. Um, on the LSAT, I I probably I think you're right, Matt, that I probably predict the correct answer about half the time. Like half the time, I'll t I'll know exactly what the answer is before I look at the answer choices, and it's the it's really important because those predictions are what helps you to get through the test in a reasonable amount of time. If you're not predicting the answers, you're you're not going to finish the test. Um, but on a first, I'm, I'm worried here. This the the listener question says um, again: Should you read the answers with an open mind? And I, my gut reaction to that is, is hell no, I'm not reading the answers with an open mind, at least not until I've read all five of them once. So I have very low respect for the answer choices. You know, only one out of five of them is the credited choice. Four out of five of them are there to distract you and trap you and waste your time and confuse you. So I guess if I have a really strong opinion, then I am going to read the answers with a pretty closed mind the first time through. And then on a second time through, if I don't find what I'm looking for, then absolutely I'm going to now open up and consider all different possibilities. Does that sound like a process that either of you guys go through? I don't think I'm as um, critical the first round through. Um, I didn't realize that you did that in two rounds in sort of like very, very critical. And then uh, I guess I'm I'm more inclined to, I mean, it's, I agree with you. It's important to be critical. But if I don't really understand an answer choice, I might say to myself, okay, probably wrong. But so I move on. Right. But I don't cross it out. No, no, so, no. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I sometimes put a like a just a one hash mark <clears throat> through through the answers, and I will I'll, I'll I will eliminate all five answers every once in a while. But then it's like it's just a hash mark going in one direction through the A, the B, the C, the D, the E, and then if I didn't find what I'm looking for, then I go back through and kind of put a slash mark through the other way. But I guess the reason why it for me the reason why this is important is that if I if I wanted to sit there and make sense of an answer choice and try to make a case for it, I could, you know, I, I'm a pretty flexible, creative thinker. So I could make a case. <laughs> it would be a pretty shitty case in most cases, but I could make a shitty case for almost any answer choice. And rather than doing that though, I instead am going to really just kind of keep moving. And, and look for, because so frequently D or E will be exactly what I predicted. And then I'm really glad that I didn't take any time, you know, trying to argue on behalf of A, B, or C. So Nathan, I got a question for you. Does, yeah. that, does, that, does that process change as you get deeper into the section? So would you approach the first third of the section the same way you would approach the final third? No, I mean, I don't even look at the question numbers. You know, I'm, I'm just answering every question correctly. That's my job. So. I feel like I'm going to go the exact same pace. I'm going to do the exact same process, which is read the argument, find the hole in it, read the question stem, predict an answer to that particular question, go find it in the answer choices. And if I don't find it in the answer choices on a first pass through, then I'll start, you know, making a case for whatever the other second best answer was. And I'll, you know, that usually doesn't take that long either. But no, I don't. I don't think the process changes. Does the process change for you? Yeah, I, I think it does actually. Um, I think of it like kind of like casting a net, um, you know, certain uh, fishing, and over the course of the section, the squares in that net um, get a little wider and a little wider and a little wider. So in the first third of the section, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm looking for, um, and I'm going to be very selective looking for that one thing. Um, and as I get later into the section like around the middle third, I'm expecting more trap answers to develop. Um, so the net needs to get, a, the holes need to get a little um, wider. I want to make sure I'm not losing the right answer. Um, <clears throat> and then as I get to the end of the section, um, I think I'm reading fairly, with a, pretty much with a very open mind. 
because the, the language is more complex. Um, and I have, a, you know, for me personally, I have a hard time understanding a lot of times what they're saying. So I don't want to throw away an answer to it just because I don't understand it. Interesting. Ben, you have anything to add to that? Um, well, I guess not really. I, I, I feel like we're saying a lot of similar things in the sense that as we, I mean, I don't necessarily treat the answers differently as I go along, although I do feel like I need to tell people to not overthink questions in the first 10. Like sometimes people are getting answers wrong there and they're, they've overthought some answer choice into some, you know, far off universe. And it's, it's like, well, this is probably going to be an easier question. So you should just kind of stick with what seems to most directly relate to the conclusion or whatever. Um, and I imagine that as I go through the section myself, I do that, although I'm not, I'm not totally sure now that we're talking about it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like to leave, I guess if I don't understand an answer choice, I agree with you, Nathan, in the sense that I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. So I'm not going to take time trying to make it correct, but I am going to leave it open. So when I do encounter an answer I know is 100% wrong, then I cross that out. So when I'm done going through one round of looking at all five answer choices, I've crossed out two, hopefully three, and then I go back to the two that I have left. And if one of them I didn't understand and the other one is clearly correct and I just pick it and I don't really actually go back to the one I didn't understand or if they both if the one I do understand makes some sense but I feel like it has a problem then I will go back and try to make sense of the one I didn't understand so that I can compare them more um, effectively yeah I guess what I'm saying primarily is just don't waste a lot of time on any individual answer choice until you have looked at all five Mm -hmm. Seems like we're on so, the same. So then, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then and then I guess going along with what you're saying, also Ben, in, you were saying specifically about the first ten, but I kind of think it applies to the entire test, which is really if 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 it takes you more than you know forty five seconds to explain why an answer is the right answer, it's probably just not. You know, there's usually a much more common sense reason why the right answer is right, so. You can definitely outsmart yourself, um, but I can usually, a student, you, when they're trying to explain to you why the right answer is right, usually they just have to go on long enough while they're talking that, that, that then it's sort of like it dawns on them that, that, you know, this can't be the answer if it's that hard to explain. Um, okay, anyway, moving on. Um, so specifically for main point logical reasoning questions, a listener asks, if I see the correct answer, should I still read the other four answers even though I am sure the answer is correct? Even if an answer matches exactly my predicted answer, do I still have to read all the other four answer choices? Uh, Matt? Well, if I didn't read those other four answer choices, I would say very often that would be wrong. I can't tell you how many times I thought B was for sure the right answer and then I got to E and I thought for sure it was the right answer. And then I needed to go back and see some little word difference that made B incorrect. Um, there's just no way this person can actually know for sure that the answer is correct right off the, right at the get-go. So uh, I, I agree with that, I would say 99% of the time. That said, for this specific question, for main point questions, I, I have to sympathize with this a little bit in the sense that when you're reading the argument or in a main point question, all you have to do is find that clause that's the main point, right? And then once you find that, you're just looking for something that's restating that. And sometimes, I mean, maybe I'm scanning the other answers just to make sure and so ultimately I am reading all five, but I do feel like there are times when it's, it's verbatim what the main point, if you're confident you've pinpointed the main point, the other answer choices are just going to be things, other parts of the argument um, or, uh, yeah. So I, I think in this, I'm, I'm inclined to make an exception and I might just pick it and move on. Mind if I add to that? The one thing that I, I noticed is that the, um, 
The test writer, the reasoning structure that they like to use a lot on main point questions is that the refutation of, of an opposing position and the degree of the refutation changes quite quite a bit from question to question. Sometimes it's that the initial view was absolutely wrong, and sometimes the the main point is that the initial view um, was formulated without considering all the evidence. Um, sometimes it's just lacking evidence. Uh, the degree of opposition can change, and if you're not, if you're not paying attention to um, the subtlety in that language, um, you may fall for a trap answer that's earlier that says that the opposing position was absolutely incorrect when it was a little bit more subtle than that. I agree with that, and I, I would also ask how long would it really take to just skim C, D, and E just to make sure? On this type of a question, on a main point question, I just it doesn't seem to me like it would take very long to glance at C and D and E. You don't even have to read every single word. Right. As soon as you find one place where the answer to it is wrong, that's enough. Toss it. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it'll take that much time. I'm just speaking from my experience. Sometimes when you're going through, when I'm going through, well, I should say I, when I'm going through the, the first, you know, the earlier part of the section and I encounter a main point question and the main point is clearly there and answer choice B seems like an obvious restatement, I think I might be inclined to just pick it and, and move on. Maybe I'm being lazy, but... Um, I guess it depends on how simple the argument it is and how confident I am that I've pinpointed that main conclusion and I've identified exactly what it's saying, but I have done that, so I guess I'm, I'm open to this. I would think for most test takers, they should probably be reading all five answers. I mean, you know, Ben, you can get away with it, but I don't know that it would be the best idea for most students just because... I mean, we've all seen it. There's so many examples of questions where an earlier question, an earlier answer just sounds really good. And then there's just a later one that's one or two words different. And I don't, I don't think that most amateurs are going to be able to, to consistently avoid that trap. I think that trap's going to, going to catch them too often to justify the time that would be saved. I, I have one, how about this question? Um, what about on a matching pattern question or a matching flaw question? One that takes up like an entire column on the page. You know, it's question number 19. It takes up an entire column. You read the argument. You think you have a pretty good handle on what the flaw is. You read A. A has exactly the matching flaw. In that case, there I think that's the one time when I might just take A without reading B, C, D, and E. I don't know. Matt, what do you think about that? I'd be very tempted to take A and then just move on to the next question. Um, but I know myself personally, and as a test taker, um, I make too many mistakes. I don't have the, um, the room to, to miss questions just because I, I, you know, I wasn't um, being diligent. I have the time in the section. I might as well use it. Um, and so I might not read every single answer choice thoroughly, but I would try to see if I could identify at least one place in each of the remaining answer choices where it deviates from, from what I'm looking, hopefully based off a of structure. So that's a, that's a nice and easy quick check. Um, but I, I think I would double check every single answer choice. My gut is telling me that that's right. I mean, I think that's what I would have to say to my students as well, that on the, on the logical reasoning, you should always, always, always read all five with no exceptions. Um, <clears throat> the point you make, Matt, about having plenty of time, I think is a good one. Um, I at least encourage my students to have the attitude that they have plenty of time, you know, rather than being feeling like they don't have enough time. Whether or not they do have enough time, that's a separate issue. But I think that the best way to get the highest score is to just feel as if you have plenty of time and just diligently, to use your word, diligently answer each question to the best of your ability before moving on. And I think part of that in, it, in the, on the logical reasoning does involve reading all five answer choices. I can see the other side, um, but I don't know. I, I tend to go through, let me ask you guys this. Do you guys tend to skip questions and go back or do you tend to revisit questions after, after you've made it through all 25 questions on logical reasoning? Uh, not usually, but there is an exception. And speaking of this parallel reasoning 
uh, question. Sometimes what I've done is, so let's say that usually these parallel reasoning questions that are long come at the end. And so maybe we're on the second to last page. If I read that answer choice A and I said, ooh, this fits the flaw, depending on how much time I had left, I might become more of a gambler and say, okay, I'm going to pick this and then move on to another question because I can probably do one more question in the time it's going to take me to kind of read through these four remaining answer choices. And so I might be inclined to finish and then come back and read the remaining four if I have time. So I've kind of prioritized what I have left. And I have done that with parallel questions in which I felt the need to diagram the remaining two answer choices. If for some reason, like they both seemed very close and it hinged on uh, the way maybe the arrows would point necessary versus sufficient and I'm having trouble seeing it quickly, intuitively. So I might pick an answer, finish the section, and then if I don't have any time at the end, then I've picked an answer and so I'm just going to go with one of the two answer choices that I was debating between. But if I do have another 30 seconds at the end or a minute or two minutes, depending on how things are going, well, if I really had two minutes, then I probably would just finish that one. But if time was tight and I did ultimately end up having time, I would go back and then diagram one or both of those answer choices to confirm that I either got it right or that I need to change my answer. So I, 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 my goal is five minutes. I want to finish the section with five minutes to go. But the only way that that's possible is I can't get stuck on questions. Um, so when I finish the section, actually, I still have three or four questions to go back and finish up. Um, it's so free. You guys know the experience where you're, you, you, you're reviewing a, a test at some point and you're, you made a mistake and you're like, well, I can't believe I chose this answer choice. This doesn't make any sense. The other one is clearly the right answer. I shouldn't. It's like the hindsight is 2020. I want to give myself that opportunity to have hindsight in the middle of the test. So before they call stop working on the section. And the only way I can do that is when I get stuck between two answer choices, I don't dwell on it for very long, I move on, I flag it as something I'm gonna come back to, and I usually have three or four flags um, that, I'm gonna, that I'm gonna check. Um, I, I'll have an answer selected, but I have no clue whether it's the right answer or not. My, so Matt, my only concern about that is that I feel like a lot of people second guess themselves when they go back and they, they pick something that's not what their initial gut reaction was, which turned out to be often correct. Like they overthought or they became overly critical of the answer that they chose as opposed to the one that they had sitting in the balance. Uh, and then they jumped to it for some reason. So I think for high-end test takers, you're right. Um, that, that second guessing, their instincts are, are generally um, the safer bet. I am not like that. I, I started off in the 140s. Um, and so for me, um, my instincts aren't generally a good safe bet. Well, I guess I should clarify. I think what happens is when people go back and they have a limited amount of time that I feel like often they, they don't reread necessarily the whole question. And so then they're just, they're like rereading the two answer choices that they were debating. And for some reason they become more critical. I, I, I feel like I see this. They're more critical of the one they chose because they chose it without being exercising the same level of criticism to the answer choice that they left open. And then they end up going and picking that one, but they didn't put it through the same mill uh, of, of you know, toughness or whatever. It's almost like the reason why they're back there is because they're doubting the work in the first place. So it's like a, it's like a flag on, on their initial judgment, essentially. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I get, I, I get that. I think maybe what they could do is um, try to change the mindset a little bit, just you know, I don't have an answer yet when I come back to this question. Um, but, it, you know, if they, if they had picked one and, and coming back is going to have a, some kind of a, a reaction where they're going to be less, less inclined to choose it, then I think that that could be dangerous. So one thing I think we might agree on here is that they, if they are going back to a question, they need to reread the whole thing with a, like a, a new set of eyes. And that's... And that's what you're trying to catch is try, hey, if I can look at this again, uh, maybe I'll catch something I didn't see before and make one answer a lot more obvious than the other now. The thing that, that I struggle with is when I'm, when I'm torn between answer choices and I rereading answer choices and I read A and then I read C and then I go back and read A and then I read C, the words 
because I'm repeating the same words again and again, it almost like they, st- they stop to lose, they, they lose their meaning. And all I hear is this, this echoing chamber of words and, and I need to get the meaning back. So I need to create some distance between myself and that question. Interesting. Um, I, I've seen a lot of students though, who, who try to do that with like, you know, nine questions. What do you guys think about that? Definitely not good. <laughs> it's way too many. Right. So where's the limit? I mean, cause I, I really teach people not to skip questions or basically my, my philosophy is I'm going to just attempt each one of these questions once. I mean, I don't have time to attempt them all twice. I don't have time to attempt very many of them twice. I really need to get them right on the first time through. So my philosophy is pretty much just, I'm going to get to as high of certainty as I can get to, and then I'm going to pick an answer and then I'm going to move on. That's not always a hundred percent, but the, but the idea for me is that I'm pretty much not going backward. Um, so what's the what's the limit? I mean, I can see why you wouldn't want to spend all day on a question, and I can certainly see if you finish early, I can see going back. But what's the maximum number of questions that you can go back to? For for me, it, it's usually one because I didn't diagram it like I was talking about for the parallel question. And I guess now that we're talking about with with Matt, I'm thinking, okay, well. If I had to put a number, I might say two, but Matt? I would say I'm pretty consistent at about three or four. Wow. Three, three or four. Is that, um, your, the, the, goal, the five minute goal, this goal of getting done five minutes early, um, is that your own personal strategy or is that a Manhattan strategy? That's a Manhattan strategy. To we, try we, to finish LR five minutes early? Five minutes is maybe aggressive. We actually, we, we use something called the time bank and we recommend, you know, different strategies for different folks. I mean, if you're shooting for a 155, you're going to use a different strategy than if you're shooting for a 175. I mean, the difference between the, you know, somebody in the high 170s and low, I mean, the low 170s is often just careless mistakes. If you can learn to build in checking mechanisms to clean up your mistakes as you go, you know, you can make that, that, that push into the high 170s. But if you're in the 150s, um, the kind of strategy you're going to use, you're probably not going to finish the section. You're probably more focused on getting those first 20 questions right or as many of them as possible right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, it's easy for us to fall into like advice for 175 scorers, but it, I always have to remember that, you know, half of the audience, half of the class is more like a 150 scorer. And to score 155, you, you really shouldn't be fi- even finishing the section, right? So to score 155, you should definitely not be going backward. Unless, I, I, you can always think of exceptions, right? Some, some folks are more inclined uh, to do well in logical reasoning and they struggle in logic games and reading comp. Depends on where their struggle is, what their advantage is. But yeah, generally I would say if somebody's in the 150s, they're probably not gonna be finishing the logical reasoning section. And then, so hence, you're not, you're not going back, right? So you're not there. You're going to just answer the questions to the best of your ability and just keep going until time runs out. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's gotta be the advice for like at least half of all test takers. Interesting. Okay. Um, anything else on this point? Nope. Uh, okay. So a logic games question when answering the typical first question to a game, like the one that asks uh, for, it's, you know, acceptability question, a list question. Which one of the following could be an accurate list of all of the clowns in the order in which they got out of the clown car? That that typical first question. Um, that the October 2002? <laughs> I have no idea which test that was. <laughs> I made that one up. Um, the So the question is, should I look at the rules that I diagrammed I think the question is, should I look at the rules that I diagrammed or should I test the rules that are on the page? What, which, what, what do you teach um, for how to do that process of elimination on the first question? Are we looking at the rules that we diagrammed or are we looking at the rules the way they're written? It's a combination. So, you know, not all of the rules can be expressed in notational form. Um, and so that's a good point. We start with the rules in notational form. Like one of the games that I'm thinking of right, right away uh, there's a game from, I think, PrepTeps45 about um, photographs, and who's in the photograph and who's not in the photograph. And the rules on that game were carefully constructed that a third, 40% of people, 
put the rule, uh, the conditional rules backwards. Yeah. And so if you're using your notation, you're going to give yourself at least a halfway decent chance of identifying that issue. Um, but once you've gone through the rules in notational form, you do need to keep an open mind that there are other rules possibly either in the paragraph um, or in the, in the rules themselves that you decided not to notate that you should be checking. I, I would add too that uh, I agree. I, I think you should use the, the rules that you've drawn uh, so that you can catch any mistakes. And then, like you're saying, Matt, you definitely have to think about the rules, especially the ones initially in the paragraph um, that we don't, you may or may not draw. But I would add too that if you made any inferences from the rules, if you combined two or more rules together to figure out something, I would start with that because it seems like when you make an inference that was not explicitly said in the initial rules, it's going to eliminate more than one answer choice. Sometimes a lot. If you do, you, do you use frames, or I'm not sure how you, how you refer to them. We, we call them frames, where you, where you solve the game in a limited number of solutions ahead of time. Would you ever use those uh, on, on, a, on a list question or orientation uh, question? Are you talking about where you, you split your diagram into... Templates or worlds or... Yeah. 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 Um, I don't usually. I, sometimes I, I find that can be confusing. But if there's an inference in something that must be true in all of them, then, yeah, I would use that. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I make worlds a lot, or as you're calling them, frames. I do that technique quite a lot for solving games, but once I've made those two scenarios or two worlds or two frames, for the first question, that list question, process of elimination question, I'm just going right back to the rules. I'm absolutely not trying to use my two worlds to eliminate answer choices there. And I do think that, um, just to, to make clear, I agree with the, the listener's question was kind of loaded and trying to point out the idea that if you test your own diagram of the rules, if you test those rules the way you diagrammed them against the answer choices, then you might eliminate all five answers or something, and it might teach you that you have messed up your rules. So I really like that strategy of, of using this question as a way of testing uh, whether or not your diagrams were correct. Um, and then I also wanted to say, um, Matt, along the lines of what you were saying, um, now, the other thing that I wanted to say was that I think Ben is absolutely right, that if you do make an inference, um, you like L has to go last. You can certainly glance down all five answers really quickly and check to see if L is last. And I think Ben's right that that can knock off two or three answers. But the thing that I would be afraid of, and I, to use Matt's word again, diligent, uh, I really think it's important that even if you narrow this elimination question down, you think you've got it down to one answer, I think you still need to go through and test all of the remaining rules, any rule that you haven't tested against that answer. I think you have to go ahead and test that rule against that one remaining answer choice. It shouldn't take you that long, but you need to make sure that you've tested all the rules against that answer choice because otherwise, if you're lazy or if you're trying to go too fast and you skip a later rule, then you'll, you might end up um, missing that question and also not even understanding the way the game works and then having all kinds of problems later on. One thing I really like about the, the standard process for, for these questions is that it takes away all of the need to be creative or think. You know, sometimes it takes more time to try to figure out what to do than it does to, to actually do it. But with these questions, you don't have to think about what to do. You just have the, the, the process, you follow the process, and it doesn't take very much time at all. I think that's a really good point as well. I, I think most times if I try to do some creative solution for this list question, I think I almost always regret it. And I wish I would have just done each of the rules one at a time and eliminate answer choices. Now, one thing that this, uh, this listener didn't ask is um, how many times uh, to read the, how, how many times they should read the rules. And I've heard varying things out there. I've heard anywhere from just one time through to four times through. And I guess it's one way to, to make sure you haven't made a mistake. I tend to tell people to read through the rules once, um, create the diagram, and then 
maybe if they find themselves making mistakes to read through the rules again, not draw anything, but use that opportunity to just read the rule and then compare it to what they've already drawn. Uh, but that's not my default recommendation. It's really only for people who find themselves making mistakes with the rules. I was curious what you guys typically think in terms of how many times people should read the rules. You know, it's, that's, um, that's an interesting question because we see quite a bit of variance amongst uh, our instructors. I don't think we have a, um, a fixed policy on that. Um, and some instructors, you know, you take any two games players and there's no way they're going to have the exact same system. Um, I've taught a lot of classes with folks who, um, who are firm believers in that second or third pass through the rules. Um, and, you know, I personally, I only take one pass through the rules. But I think of that first pass as kind of being slow, like molasses. I'm, I'm moving really slow. I don't want to. I don't want to hurry it up here at all. I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. But once is usually enough for me. I yeah, and I think I read them twice, or at least I try to stay disciplined enough. To the 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 thing that I I really like to do is read everything before I write anything. I like to just read the whole setup and all of the rules if I can, just to so, sort of get the forty thousand foot view of it. And then when I go through it again and start writing, then I would be um, reading, I guess, those rules for a second time. But it's not like I'm just reading the rules once and then reading them again so that I understand them. That seems like a waste of time. It's more like I'm reading everything so that I can get the big picture of how I'm going to set the game up. Then I'm going in and reading everything very specifically and closely. One of the, one of the recommendations that I saw a teacher of ours um, make a couple months ago um, when they go back and do that second pass to the rules, what they're doing is they're taking the first rule and they're talking about the characters or the positions where those characters are located and they're looking for other rules that either reference those characters or those positions. So in that second pass, they're actually looking for very specific things and they're trying to make the connections across the rules um, as opposed to just making sure that they've notated them or understood them correctly. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that that's like the most important thing that we teach about logic games, right, is that you need to look for the connections between the rules. There's a shocking amount of examples of games where the first rule mentions Z and the second rule mentions Z, and that's the entire key to the game, and it really is that easy sometimes. All you have to do is just notice who's used in more than one rule and then think about that. Um, all right, I want to move on to listener Keaton had a few questions, and these are all they're all kind of tied together, but I, I broke them up a little bit. Keaton was, um, in, I've paraphrased Keaton's email, but uh, Keaton has some experience testifying on behalf of a bank and worked as a paralegal, but is worried about his uh, less than stellar academic past. And so he's asking, um, as a big picture question, how does work experience impact admissions and is his work experience going to make up for his bad GPA? Either one of you want to tackle that one? Um, you know, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I mean, they still have to make it through that that first cut. Um, you know, the admissions cycle begins as a numbers game, um, and now more than ever, law schools are sweating. What's going to happen with their numbers with the applications dropping? Um, so, I mean, incentives matter, and law schools have incentives to pay attention to those numbers. Whether well, it means that they're uh, when they report the LSAT scores and GPAs to ranking agencies, those numbers go into a number that's actually very important for everything from you know how much they can uh, charge their students to maybe what the what the the um, income of their graduating class is going to look like to what the income of the professors is going to look like, and for, to ask them to ignore those incentives is is, is, is that's a tough one, I think. So you're saying that the, the GPA is going to matter significantly and his experience is not going to matter much? I would say that you have to have the numbers to get past the hard factors so that you can start looking at the soft factors. So if your GPA is just really trash, it doesn't matter whether you've got all these other great trappings, you know, and unless you, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's some cases of senators, sons and stuff but for the most part, you have to have the numbers to get into that school. So one thing that um, 
Keaton mentioned in his emails that he started with a very low GPA. His ultimate GPA ended up being a little bit under three, but his last semester or two semesters, I think, and this was a trend overall, is that it went from very low up to three point five. So uh, that's a to to that's a very good thing for Keaton. Um, I'm sure that the schools will be more concerned about where he's at than where he was when he started college. Um, I don't think that his experience, though, is going to have much of an impact. I know he was a witness, I guess he said. Or from, he had legal experience at his his job, some corporation, I believe. I, I don't think that's, unfortunately, that important. Um, I mean, I think it shows that he knows what he's getting into a little bit, which is good. But I kind of have to agree with you, Matt. At the end of the day, the, the hard numbers are, are going to play a bigger role. I don't know how bad his GPA is going to hurt him, though, because I do feel like the LSAT still is the 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 king here. But no, I have not much. So most law schools use index formulas um, as a ranking system for all of their incoming applicants, and each school writes their own their own formula. But it's essentially a coefficient times your LSAT score uh, plus a coefficient times your GPA plus some constant, and that equals your index number. And they'll rank order everybody who applies, and everybody above a certain number is a, is a presumptive admit, and everybody below a, some, a certain number is a presumptive deny. You know, if you don't make it past that presumptive deny, you're not going to get considered regardless, um, unless, you're, unless your application gets flagged for some particular reason. Um, I mean, I can, I can tell you the story of my great brother. He got into the University of Washington Law School, not based off of his LSAT or GPA, but because he had a professor from the law school Right, his uh, personal uh, is a letter of recommendation. They couldn't say no to their own faculty. So there's ways around things, but for the most part, those numbers are really, really important. And if you look at the the admissions formulas, they're they're available on the LSAC website. You can see that each school has their own idea of what's going to lead to um, the best incoming class. So some schools will put two thirds of the weight on the on the LSAT score only a third of the weight on the GPA and other schools will reverse that uh, two thirds on the GPA and only a third on the LSAT. If you look at it overall though, on average, it's about 55% LSAT, 45% GPA. Say that again. What, what was it LSAT and what was it GPA? 55% LSAT, 45% GPA. Have you noticed any trends in terms of like higher rank schools versus, you know, middle rank schools or something like that? Yeah, lower rank schools have a tendency to use the LSAT as a uh, as a way to rise through the ranks in the in the rankings agencies. So you'll see them. Lower rank schools have a tendency to weight the LSAT more heavily, mm. but that's speaking in averages. I mean, still NYU weights the LSAT very heavily, and you know they're not a lower rank school. Do you, and this is on LSAC.org, right? Do you know what to search for if people wanted to find these formulas? They make it almost impossible to find. If you have, you have to log into your account. And okay. from there, it usually takes me about three hours of looking around each spring, uh, <laughs> fall before I find the, the, the actual sheet. Um, but it's in there. Um, in fact, if you have any listeners that uh, call in or email in, uh, if you connect them to me, I can, I can send them that so they don't have to spend those three hours looking on LSAC. So there's like a menu drop down with data or something like that. Is there any terms? No, it's, that we it's a it's a PDF. It's a two page PDF, and it li- literally writes out the formulas for each school. Wow, that's that's very valuable. Um, is and you have to so it's not searchable. You have to be logged into your LSAC account. So you have to be signed up for the test and signed up for LS the the data assembly service or just for the LSAT. You don't actually have to be signed up for the LSAT, but you do have to have an LSAC account. Okay. All right. Well, so, I'm going to go looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like something we should talk about, um, dig into more deeply. It would be fun to compare some of those formulas and talk about what they might mean for specific students. So there's a future show for us. Um, we got just a few minutes left. I want to talk about Keaton's couple other questions here. I mean, I, I agree with you guys, your advice that, yeah, your, your work experience is going to count, but really only at the margins once they've already decided based on your LSAT and your GPA that you're somebody that they would like to consider. That's when they're going to consider your work experience. And if your LSAT and your GPA are just below their ranges, you're just, your work experience is not going to get you in, unfortunately. 
Fortunately, you can improve quite a bit on the LSAT, and that's what you should definitely be working on. Um, Keaton asks, he's got high goals. He says he wants a 170 plus. He's currently in the 160s. He wants a 170 plus and a scholarship at a quote, quality school. And then wants to know if he's being unrealistic. Um, Matt, you want to try to tackle that one first? Uh, if he wants a scholarship, this is the year to get one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and that's the good news. Um, law schools have uh, no applicants and tons of money, um, making it a good year for scholarships. Um, in terms of getting from the 160s to the 170s, of course that's possible. It's just a matter of time. Um, I, I really don't see that anybody's um, score is limited by anything other than how much time are they willing to invest in this thing. It really isn't um, that complicated. It, but to pick up all the moving pieces, it does take a while. Um, so if, if Keaton's willing to put in the time and you know, maybe in the next two or three months he's not able to get there, but in the next four or five months he is able to get there, is it worth it to him at that point? I mean, he might have to wait a year to go to law school. Uh, I think the scholarship money will still be there next year as well. But, I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time at some point. Ben, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, he's I know he's trying to shoot for the December test. Um, I think it's, it, it, as each day passes, it's going to be harder to get up to that between now and the December test, but it's certainly possible. And uh, I think he had mentioned that he had taken three tests. Um, so he needs to take a lot more to really figure out, um, you know, see if he can start seeing some of the results from his studying. Because I know he said he's put in a lot of time, but uh, he may just need to be putting in more. So He did ask um, for last-minute tips. He says he hasn't improved much uh, on the logic games. That's still the weakest section. With a month left to kick it into gear, what, uh, what advice do we have for him? I'll start off. Um he needs to, to, he needs a breadth of experience. In order to do well in logic games, you need to have enough um, experience to have comparisons so that when you get into a situation, instead of trying to learn it fresh, you're using your recollections, your memory of other experiences to help guide you in terms of what's the best way to set this thing up. Um, I, I draw the analogy to... Um, uh, these connections between games, whether they're within the same game type or, or across different game types, the more connections you can draw between games, whether that be um, there was a list that they gave you of several options and you found it useful to invert that list and you find three other games where they do the same thing or whether you see games where you have an uneven number of players to positions and, and that leads you to frames or scenarios or worlds. Um, those kinds of connections they're like synapses in your brain. And the more synapses you have in your brain, the faster you think because the neurons can go in a straighter line. So you need to draw as many connections across games as you possibly can so that you don't have to think about what to do. You recognize patterns and you implement them. I, I totally agree. I think that that... I like how you said that um, we're not only making connections between games of the same type, but also games that have, are maybe different types, but they have some similar rules or ways of, you know, structuring something, even though it's a different game type. Um, I couldn't agree more. The more experience you have, like sometimes I feel like I do well on the games, not because I'm particularly good at them or fast, but because I've seen so many um, that when I encounter something that seems a little strange, it's like, oh yeah, but I've, I've seen something similar and this is what I did then. So I don't have to spend as much time thinking about what to do. And I'd like to say, I think, you know, this show is going to come out with two weeks left or something like that before the December LSAT. And I, I want to encourage everybody who's listening that it is not too late to make pretty big improvements on the logic games. Even if you only have a couple of weeks, if you do a couple sections of games every single day for the next two weeks, you know, you're going to have 28 more sections of games under your belt that's a lot i mean that's that's a third of all the games that have ever been released you could potentially do in just a couple weeks time um if you had a couple hours a day so let me add to that yeah i can speak from personal experience i went up eight points in the last 10 days before my first official lsat 
Yeah, I have a similar story. I improved a ton on the games in like the last week or the last 10 days is when it really kind of clicked for me. I don't I don't remember how many points I went up, but we'll just say it was was a lot to make everybody feel good. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a similar thing, Ben, where you where the games like were kind of clicked for you at the last minute or did you figure that out earlier? You know, I don't remember and I can't remember if I've said this on the show, but I, I had I, I seriously did a lot of things wrong when I prepared. I still remember doing just games because at first that was what I was struggling with most. Yeah. And I did it so much that what I would do is I would do a game section and then I would figure out how many I got correct and then I would multiply that number by four to estimate what my else had <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> oh, wow. You were consistently underestimating. Yeah, that's a maximum yeah. of 92 correct. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, it was it was a mess, but um, and I did that while I was standing on a bus and commuting. So, but um, I did want to add. If I completely agree, if you do uh, sections of games like like you were saying, Nathan, you can make a lot of progress. And I would add that if there are any games in there that you felt were particularly um, slow for you, like you understood them and they don't seem totally out there in terms of weirdness, um, it would be worth doing them over again. Uh, maybe a few times to really get your mind wrapped around them so that you can uh, do them again or something similar to them again quickly. And that's a great, great point. Repeating games a couple of times makes a big difference in terms of drawing those connections. Um, and, and if I had to emphasize any particular tests to be doing, the LSAT has a tendency to run in these periods, three-year periods or so, um, and the games most similar to the ones we're expecting in December are the ones from, let's say, the last 10 practice tests. So if you're going to focus somewhere, I'd say focus between prep test 63 and 73. Okay, sounds good. Um, I just have one more question, Matt, for you. It's a question about the Manhattan curriculum, so I guess you're the guy. Um, do you teach students to read the question stem first on the logical reasoning questions? Uh, that's a tricky, tricky question. Um, I personally believe that that's um, not important. Um, that I know lots of people who read the question stem first and do just fine, and lots of people who read the stimulus first and do just fine. Our curriculum has folks reading the question stem first. Personally, I read the stimulus first. How come? Um, the motion, the, the, the act of trying to identify where the question stem is located and then moving up and then down and then up and then down is too jarring for me. I'd rather just read in a continuous motion if possible. So that's a, um, it is a Manhattan strategy, but you're not obligated to teach it? Uh, I'm not obligated. Well, I teach it as an option. I see. And I teach the alternative as an option. We, we do a lot more of, here are some options available to you. And we fully expect our students to tailor their approach to the, the pieces that work best for them. So when we're introducing notation, we don't expect students to um, follow exactly the notational schemes we, we use in class or whatever. We expect that you know, some people who are more visual um, are going to maybe draw more picturesque type rules and others might use more kind of mathematical formulas. We, we expect them to tailor the, the advice that they're getting to what they know is gonna work best for them. I love that point. I mean, I, I would I, I really like to tell my students that I'm teaching them principles of cooking, fundamentals of cooking, not teaching them recipes. This is not like memorize exactly how to do this. This is more like, hey, here's a bunch of tools, here's a bunch of strategies. You come up with your own solution. Sounds like that's what you're doing. Exactly. Cool. Um, so just we've taken up enough of your time, I think, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, is there anything that you'd like to pitch to the listeners or how do people get in touch with you? How do people find out more about what you're doing and what's going on in Manhattan? Well, there's a lot of great things going on in Manhattan. Um, you know, one of the easiest things that folks might be interested in, um, especially in the, in the lead up before the December LSAT is, uh, our LSAT forums. We have explanations to every LSAT question out there. They're dynamic. We've got a whole team of instructors answering them. Um, and so if, uh, during the next, you know, three weeks before the, the December LSAT, they have questions about 
um, you know, where can they find games similar to this game or where can they, um, you know, how can they, whatever it happens to be, if, if you've got a, if you have a question about why the right answer is right and the wrong answers are wrong, we, we do that. Um, but we also go into more depth about um, issues like the kind of language cues that you're seeing and whether those language cues, uh, there are other, other, other words that give you the same kind of meaning. So we have dynamic explanations that they may want to use. Um, and beyond that, um, you know, we'd love to see you guys in one of our classes. You guys are more welcome to come and take a look at, um, you know, we have trial classes all the time. Um, and if anybody would like to get in touch with me, um, email is the, is the best way. Uh, M Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N at ManhattanPrep.com. Um, and if you have a more generic question, student services, LSAT, LSAT at ManhattanPrep.com. Perfect. All right. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Matt, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks yeah. for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That was fun. <laughs>